The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I want to start by having you guys stand, and we're going to say the Lord's Prayer, um, and then you can sit again. So let's, let's do that first. And this is out of Matthew's uh, gospel. So many of us, myself at least, uh, there's a there's a doxology that's missing because it's not in Matthew's ESV version. Um, we won't go into that. But anyway, let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. And just to give you uh, a heads up, we're going to pray it at the end, but I've added some things to contextualize it around the teaching today. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So, I've been tasked with uh, adding the kingdom of God to the mix of discipleship. And the kingdom of God is a relatively new uh, doctrine. It may sound a little bit strange to you. The kingdom of God has been around since the Old Testament, um, and yet it's never really been one of the more developed systematic theologies in Christianity, especially in Protestantism. And so it's fairly recent, maybe 30 years old, and there's still a lot of development being done. So most of what I want to talk about today is really going to just do what's called biblical theology. So we're going to take a theme in the Bible, which is, in our case, the doctrine or the, the, the kingdom of God, and go through the Bible and see what the Bible says about it. Now, we're not going to look everywhere. We're going to look at maybe 10 or 12 different sections. But what I want you to pay attention to is not only what is being said, but where it's being said. This idea of the kingdom is evolving throughout the the Bible. The Bible was written over a thousand years. It was written by over 40 different authors. And from beginning to end, the, the progress, the development of the kingdom of God can be clearly seen. So with that, uh, go ahead, Tony, go to the next slide. Oh, back one slide, sorry. Uh, if we were going to do a full understanding of the kingdom of God, there'd be at least five parts. The first part is biblical development, which is what we're going to focus on today. The second part would be discussing the king, uh, Jesus. The third would be his reign. And uh, Paul talked about this starting last week with the Sermon on the Mount. What are the ethics? What are the values? What are the commands that we are to, to uh, follow? We would talk about his subjects, which is us, the church, and we would talk about fulfillment, which is ultimately in Revelation 21 and 22. We're not going to do all that today. Uh, hopefully, we can get through number one. Um, so bear with me. I'm going to probably get speeded up at the end because I'll probably be running over. But uh, having said that, uh, this is not a sermon in the natural sense. So anytime you have a question of clarification, please raise your hand and ask it. I'm used to it. Uh, this is what I do. So let's dive in and let's have a class, a Bible class. Let me first give you a operating definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's prepared place under God's rule. Very simple definition. And to give you some examples, the Garden of Eden. So in that, if you remember, God prepared the garden first, right? He took, he, he did his creation, and then he had a special section where he was creating this garden. And then into that garden, he planted his uh, highest creature, us, mankind, to dwell and to rule in that garden. Under his rule, we were to be his, his vice regents. We were to be his, not only expressing his image, but expressing his attributes and expressing his authority in a godly way. Noah's Ark would be another one, right? He prepared that through the work of Noah. He shut them up in that. He carried them through that until the flood was over. 
held them there by grace. And then lastly, the promised land in Palestine. So those are three examples from the Old Testament. Three in the New would basically be Jesus when he was doing his earthly ministry with his disciples and his entourage. That would be God's people in God's prepared place under God's rule. Second would be the church. So right here, right now, without a physical location, in a spiritual sense, we are under the reign of Jesus Christ. We are his people, and we, he has prepared us for the kingdom. And then lastly, the new heavens and the new earth. And then the second definition really is even simpler. It's anywhere Jesus is. Jesus is not only the king. He's the manifestation of the kingdom. He has all authority. He has all power. It's all about him. So where he is, is the kingdom. Tony's good. He's faster than I am. Okay. So... We're going to break this into sections, and I'm not going to look up all of these texts, but it's important to look up some of them. The first one I've already talked a little bit about, but each of these texts, uh, if you can have a file system in your mind, the notes that I, that I have written here uh, next to the texts help start a list of subject items in the Bible that relate to the kingdom of God. The first one that we're going to talk about is man created in God's image. It's important to understand the kingdom of God in the fact that God created humanity specifically and only exclusively in his image. The reason that we find out later is he has always wanted a human being, a physical person, a physical representative to govern his creation. And initially it was Adam and Eve, and they unfortunately committed sin. They fell, and what happened to them? They actually got exiled from the Garden of Eden. So they were no longer in the kingdom of God. But it's important that we remember God created us, male and female, He created us in His image. And that is essentially the first fundamental building block to the kingdom of God. Then we're going to jump ahead to Genesis 17. Uh, Abram was a man that God chose uh, to, to be his first patriarch, and he later called him Abraham. And in Genesis 17, we uh, see his covenant where God gave him three things unconditionally. He gave him descendants, he gave him a people, he gave them a land, he promised him a land, and he promised him a kingly rule. God's people and God's place under God's rule. Skip ahead to the fulfillment of all of that in Exodus 6. So the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, were captive, right, in Egypt under Pharaoh. They were slaves. There was a large group of them by this time. So God had, in a sense, created his nation. He just hadn't formed it yet. So in, his, in Exodus 6, he develops the Mosaic Covenant. He calls out his people. This is the first time that he has created his own people. He says in Exodus 6, I will be their God and they will be my people. And that theme we need to always remember in relationship to the kingdom of God. It's even mentioned at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. Now I am their God and they are my people. It's something that God has been working for all along. We understand the law. So the law is important because it doesn't give us a sense of do's and don'ts, even though that's how we treat it. It gives us a reflection of the values and the person of God. What is his uh, heart? What is his rule? We forget, and, and we're going to talk about this more than once, but we forget we are in, uh, as Christians, we are in a foreign land. We are in uh, enemy territory. We are in a broken world that's under the rule of another person. And we 
being raised in the world still have worldly ideas in our minds and worldly values. And part of the process of transferring from one kingdom to the other, from dominion of darkness, as we're going to call it today, which is under Satan, which is the world, into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus, is a lot of deconstruction. We have to, in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own spirits, unlearn a lot of the things that we were taught by this world. Holy living is required. Atonement. So we learn from the Mosaic Covenant that God wants to dwell with His people. And so He establishes a sacrificial system not to kill a lot of animals and, and, and just have a lot of blood, but to allow the sin of the people to be uh, removed so that He can dwell with them. If, if He did not do that and He tried to dwell with them, He would destroy them because of His holiness, because of His righteousness. He had to make a path, a bridge, to allow them to have righteousness on His standards so that He could dwell with them. And then that atonement was substitutionary, right? So the, the sins of the people were transferred to the goats. The goat was slaughtered, and the one goat was taken off out of the camp. The community and holy living is required. Those are all things that transfer into the kingdom of Christ. Second Samuel, the Davidic covenant. So following along through the Bible, Israel has its ups and downs, generally downs. It develops into a group of tribes and in general doesn't obey God and they end up wanting a king because all of their pagan neighbors have kings. God grants them a king. Saul doesn't do so well. Um, the throne is given to David. And then David, at the end of David's, uh, God, at the end of David's reign, makes a covenant with him that's called the Davidic covenant, the eternal reign. Uh, so there's an eternal promise that there will be a descendant of David on the throne forever. There'll be a people, there'll be a place, there'll be a throne. And we, we know that now that Jesus is on that throne. Psalms is, is full of talk about the kingdom. Um, and I'm only going to read a couple snippets. But I think it's important that we understand the Hebraic understanding of not only the kingdom, but of life. And when I say life, what I mean is human experience. Um, Theology that doesn't make sense in our lives is useless. Um, if indeed the things that we are talking about are true, that there really is a kingdom of God and that we're really in it, then that's the reality. Rather, whether Mike's acknowledging it or not is irrelevant. That is the reality. And so it should have an impact on how we think and, and how we act. And, and how we understand and interpret our human experience. And so, let me just read snippets of Psalm 2 first, giving you kind of the background of God's perspective on the Messiah. Beginning in verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And then skipping down to verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today, I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That is a messianic psalm. And the Son, as we come to know, is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Psalm 47 gives us a, a snapshot of how Hebraic mind understood 
authority and it understood God and the rulers, the kings, and, and all of the authority of the earth. And so it's totally different than how we look at it today. So let me read it and then let's just make a couple comments on it. Verse 1, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. We uh, today don't, don't think that way. Um, we don't see uh, God, we, I, people in general, not you necessarily at Heritage. We don't see the sovereignty of God. We don't even recognize God. And so these, this idea that um, the, the heads of state of the countries, whether they're in the West or the East, uh, are in control, in a sense, and under the authority of a God is, is not a concept that we have in the 21st century. And yet, it very much is true. And even within the Christian community, we may or may not agree on the uh, efficacy of the presidency or the governorship. We certainly may or may not agree with the decisions they make. But from a biblical perspective, God has ordained them to be in their place at this point, and the authority they have, he has given them. And it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes, but it's the mindset that I think we need when it comes to the kingdom of God. One of the key things we as the subjects of the kingdom need to do is submit to authority. And it's not something we like to do, especially here in Rogue Valley. Many people move here to avoid doing that. So it's, a, it's an area where each one of us need to, to look in our hearts and our souls and um, bend the knee to the reign of Jesus Christ. Skipping to the very end of the Old Testament, there's three primary things that are left open that the um, nation of Israel would be anticipating. One is the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The second is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the third is the presentation of the Messiah. So let's move on to the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels now. So we've learned a lot about the kingdom. We've learned all of those things uh, about components that the kingdom would have in it. Now we're going to be introduced to the king. We're not going to talk about so much what his teaching is so much as who he is. These first, this first line is Jesus' baptism. And I'm just going to read Matthew's version. But when I read it, you will recall what I just read in um, Psalm 2. As, Jesus, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And the audience there would have an instantly thought of Psalm 2. And, and they would have thought, okay, that's the Messiah. So this is a messianic statement by God. Not only that, it's an anointing.
Yeah, I think that's a case-by-case uh, -case decision. I don't think we can make a blanket statement. If it violates the kingdom of God, I think it's pretty clear that we don't submit. But I think in general, a lot of the, at least in the last year and a half with COVID, there's been a lot of back and forth among the Christians that I think has been over the, over the line a little bit. And it's in, in the, I was thinking about this as I was preparing just myself. I get frustrated at certain things, right? And whether it's someone telling me to wear a mask or someone telling me to get a shot or whatever it is, I look at that and I back up and I look at the kingdom of God and I look at the master plan of God and it's not of much consequence what I'm frustrated about. So I think those types of things, we need to just bite our tongue. If it's a conviction that we have and we feel strongly that it's against the law of God, I think we need to make a stand. I don't know if that, does that answer your question? I think it does. So let me answer that this way. Um, my faith is not in Mike's understanding or Mike's preconceptions or Mike's understanding of right and wrong. Uh, faith is in this, right? In, in, in Jesus' authority and in what is written in this book. If, if a multiplicity of leaders, uh, for instance at Heritage, if we have an a group of elders and, and the governor mandates something, and, and we feel strongly enough that we have to make a stand as a church. We would come to you guys and we would ask for your support in that. I think, I, that, I guess I see that's how it's working out. Um, we do, there are points where we have to make a stand, where we don't conform. But in general, a lot of the stuff that, that I see on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't think personally elevate to that level. So we do have to submit to Christ. And sometimes Christ's laws aren't interfered with by what the governor says or what the president says. We might think they are, but in the Bible it's hard to find an exact law that we're, that's being violated, if that makes sense. It's one thing to just be frustrated about it and, and feel it's impending on my personal space, but that's not necessarily in violation of what Jesus' kingdom is. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Okay. Um, so, after the baptism, Jesus does what? He gets moved by the Holy Spirit to go out into the desert. And what happens there? He gets tempted by Satan. And he obviously... Uh, not only survives, he triumphs. But what he does, maybe 
in relationship to the kingdom is something that you may or may not have thought about. Obviously, as God, as the God-man, he would have more authority than Jesus or than Satan. But he hadn't executed it. And what he did when he went out into the desert is not only did he defeat Satan, but he executed his authority over Satan so that when they parted ways, his kingdom, his authority, his power was now the ruling power in the land, if that makes sense. So Satan was no longer in complete control of the world. If you remember, he has, he is the prince of the air, so to speak. He is the ruling um, power and authority within the world, and he still is today. But Jesus has conquered him, and we now have the ability to get transferred out of Satan's dominion of darkness, which is how Colossians 1 calls it, into the kingdom of light. And we're going to have time to look at that, hopefully. But that transference is because Jesus' authority and his uh, triumph over Satan in the desert where he defeats him and sets us free. The next section is uh, the beginning of each of the synoptic gospels. And then in um, John, it talks about specifically Jesus' ministry focused on the kingdom. So I'm just going to read one of them. Luke 4, he uh, comes back from the desert, comes back from the temptation, goes and preaches in the synagogue in Nazareth, claims the Messiah, as he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He then drives out an evil spirit. He heals many. Um, when the sun was setting, starting at verse 40, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ, the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I came. So, Jesus' message, his purpose, was the kingdom of God. Um, as we've already talked about, Matthew 5-7 through 7, covered last week by Paul, it talks about the teachings of the kingdom and the reign, if you will, of the kingdom. And uh, it actually, maybe contradictory to what we think, increases the righteousness required. It increases the obedience required. It increases the uh, value of us because of the sacrifice that was made. To be in the kingdom requires a higher level of holiness than it would have in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't reduce it. He actually increased it. Luke 7 is where um, John the Baptist is in the uh, prison and he sends his disciples to, to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus is in the middle of healing, and he tells them specifically, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And then skipping down to 28. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And that goes back to what I was just saying. We in the kingdom are of higher value, greater than the Old Testament prophets than John the Baptist. Why? Because of our king, because of the blood that he shed. Um, 
And there's a lot to unpack there, but it's an amazing theological reality that we, we need to train ourselves to see. That we, when we look at each other, when we look in the mirror, God loves us more than he's ever loved any, anybody else. And he has an eternity of plans for us to, to be a part of. Um, Luke 19 is a triumphal entry. So this is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' ministry, his life. And he is publicly paraded through the streets of Jerusalem as the Messiah. All the cosmos, the demons, the angels, everyone recognized Jesus as the Messiah at that point. John 18 is important as well. This is where Jesus is being questioned by Pilate. And I'll start at verse uh, 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. It was his purpose to do the kingdom work. And then Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is his ascension and the Great Commission and his proclamation that all authority on heaven and earth had been given to him. All right, so any next one? New Testament. So what we're going to talk about now, we're going to do relatively quickly. Um, in Acts chapter 1 and at the very end in chapter 28, it's bookended with the expansion of the kingdom. So Luke makes clear to us that the kingdom of God has grown and is expanding and is continuing to expand as per Jesus' commands and desires. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is, is the great hymn of talking about the humiliation of Jesus who came down from heaven, came down from his throne, took on the peasant life of a, a carpenter in Nazareth and was anointed as the Son of God. Then suffered, fulfilled everything God wanted him to do, and so God exalted him to the highest place. Ephesians, these three verses uh, are critical. So we'll look through these really quick. Um, they're all verse 10, just in different chapters, so that makes it nice. So Ephesians 1 is the kingdom plan, um, the cosmic gospel. It reads, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So the end game, the master plan that God has is to bring everything in the universe back under the reign and the authority and the rule of Jesus, his son. And at that point, Jesus hands the keys back over to the Father. That's the end state, if you will. That's what the whole plan has been since Genesis 1, since before Genesis 1. It is the purpose of the kingdom. The purpose of holy living, kingdom living, found in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. We focus a lot on um, accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior as we should. Um, and we are saved out of sin. We are saved out of God's wrath. We are saved out of the dominion of Satan. But we are also saved into stuff. And it's that where we sometimes forget. We are saved into the kingdom. We are saved into something that is a program and a call to action. And it's this call to action 
that requires us to be disciples and to make disciples. And as we as a church move into um, this new season, starting in September, that's going to become our focus, is making disciples. And it's important for us to understand what that means within the kingdom context. But ultimately, it means fulfilling these good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. And then lastly, the church purpose. It's found in chapter 3, verse 10. His intent, God's intent, the Father's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we are to be displaying the manifold wisdom of God in the world to all authorities, to all creatures. Again, hearkening back to Genesis 1 and uh, God's initial plan. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 is the supremacy of Christ. We're just going to skip through that shortly. Revelation 1, 4 through 6, the kingdom was, the kingdom is, the kingdom will be forever. And then the end of Revelation is the perfected kingdom of God reigning with his people. Thank you. So why are we doing this? What's the value of using the kingdom of God as an interpretive model? Number one, it more fully explains God's biblical plan. I mean, I, I broke that down into A through F. A, it ties more things together in the Bible. Part of the, the great thing with the kingdom of God is it harmonizes many of the other theological, biblical theological models. Um, some of you have probably heard of dispensationalism and covenant theology and process theology, etc. And those are all models as well that have been used throughout the decades and the centuries. Um, the kingdom of God actually harmonizes many of those things together, and some of the barriers between those models are broken down when we start using the kingdom of God as the interpretive model. B, it's the best philosophical explanation of the human experience. And I've touched on this, but the idea that we live in a broken world ruled by Satan, it's a dominion of darkness, and that we are then, through the power of Christ, the person of Christ, the blood of Christ, transferred out of that kingdom, freed from the rule of Satan, and transferred into the kingdom of light, best fits, really, the human experience. Whether you're in the 21st century Southern Oregon or whether you're in uh, 1000 BC and David's writing a psalm, it best fits the human experience. And it's a, it's, it's a narrative that we as a church need to continue to help each other remember because we don't think that way. And yet it makes so much sense, and it impacts how we view our reality when we start looking at it that way, when we start realizing how active Satan is and how much different the world is than what we are called to be. C, it explains the church and its role in God's master restoration plan. D, it unites each of us to the biggest project the universe has going the unification of everything under the reign of Christ. That's the ultimate plan, and we are integrated into it. E, it best explains how it all ends in a fully realized kingdom. And then F, it broadens our understanding of the eternal state, of what heaven will be like, about how the eternal eternity with the Father and the Son will look. Number two, it unites us in the kingdom family. We are a community. We have a common enemy. We have a common mission. We have common weapons. This reality supersedes doctrinal differences, worship styles, sermon styles, how a Christian looks, talks, or acts on church on Sunday. It's not about Sunday. Not that Sundays need to be neglected. They, they shouldn't. They can't be. But it's not about Sunday. 
Three, it defeats meism. It's not about Mike. Never was, never will be. My wants and preferences are to become aligned to the kingdom, not the other way around. Four, it explains more critically why Jesus had to come, suffer, and die, why we need his righteousness, why we need the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and why we need to love and submit to the king's authority. There's a lot there to unpack, which we're not going to do today. Five, it focuses our energy on action now, not after Jesus comes again. We are not waiting for the second coming to, to take action. We are certainly longing for the second coming, for this to end, for Jesus to come again and establish his kingdom. We are not waiting to act for that moment. We were created for good works. And then lastly, our vision of the Christ event is not just forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is a call to duty in the kingdom of Christ. We are to go through holistic training, which is what we call discipleship, to stop doing the things of Satan's domain, the worldly things, and start doing the things of Christ's kingdom. And these things take time. This transference takes time. We have all been saturated and been trained by the world. My uh, affections, my wants, my deeper passions and desires, I can't just flip a switch and change those. Those take time to change your worldview. It takes time to change your affections. And yet, that's what the Holy Spirit does when we give him that opportunity. This is a quote from a theologian by the name of George Ladd. Jesus did not promise the forgiveness of sins. He bestowed it. He did not simply assure men of the future fellowship of the kingdom. He invited men into fellowship with himself as the bearer of the kingdom. He did not merely promise them vindication in the day of judgment. He bestowed upon them a present righteousness. He not only taught an eschatological deliverance from physical evil, he went about demonstrating the redeeming power of the kingdom, delivering men from sickness and even death. This is the meaning of the presence of the kingdom as a new era of salvation. To receive the kingdom of God, to submit oneself to God's reign, meant to receive the gift of the kingdom and to enter into the enjoyment of its blessings. The age of fulfillment is present, but the time of consummation still awaits the age to come. So this very last sentence talks about the kingdom being present. It is uh, inaugurated, is what it's called, but it isn't consummated. So there will be a fuller representation, a fuller manifestation of it when Jesus comes again. But it is through the church, through heritage, it is effective. In a sense, we are an outpost, if you will, of the kingdom in a foreign land, in a fallen, broken world, under a different ruler. And it is our job to exercise the values, the ethics, the power of the kingdom in the midst of this fallen world. Uh, really quick, this is the worldview that I'm, I'm talking about that it's explained in Colossians and was very much the same worldview that was talked about in Psalms. And I'll just let you look at that, but um, focusing on the kingdom of the light, Jesus reigns. He is the agent of God's restorative plan. We are created through him and are a new humanity. We have an inverted rule. So the, the value system that we have is completely opposite of the value system of Satan and the world. Whereas Satan destroys good, it is our job, it is our blessing, it is God's work to, to bring brokenness to, or to restore brokenness to good. He restores us to good, and then we as uh, recipients of that become reconciliation agents. Our destiny is heaven on earth. Satan's destiny and dominion of darkness's destiny is the lake of fire. Colossians, this is all we're going to do in Colossians 1. Um, there's 
this 15 through 20 is primarily two different, uh, it's a poem and there's two verses. Verse one is verses 15 through 17. I just wanna highlight a couple things because in him, verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is not only the why, he's the what and the how. Verse 17, he is before all things and holds all things together. There is nothing in creation, all of the universe, that is self-sustaining. Jesus sustains everything. He sustains us for our next breath. He sustains the universe, the cosmos. If he stopped doing that, we would not survive. The universe would not survive. So he's at work not just in sustaining his church. He's at work sustaining the universe itself. And again, Jesus is the creator. Mike is the created. Jesus is the sustainer. I'm sustained. Jesus is the ruler. I'm the one ruled. Jesus is independent. I am dependent. The second half, the second verse really talks about Jesus as the God-man, the fact that he is the head of the church. And what does that mean? That means he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Death was required for this to happen. The fullness of God dwelled in him. Um, if you remember, God said, in him I am well pleased. He says the same thing here, in him I am well pleased. Verse 20, through him God reconciles all to himself. And then this note that I wrote, I am reconciled to God not just for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, I certainly am that. I am reconciled to be the first fruits of the master restoration plan. You and I, by walking in the kingdom of God, live out the power and the ethics of the kingdom to all the cosmos. We are a saving grace to some and a condemning witness to others. God has made us agents of reconciliation. And it is this point, um, this is part of our role as the church, and it is where discipleship is needed. We, we don't do this effectively unless we're authentically transformed, unless we're touched by the Holy Spirit, transformed on the inside, um, forgiven and, and exhibiting the righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we can't do this effectively, and that takes genuine discipleship to be able to be an agent of reconciliation. Let's skip down to the 17. Keep going. Let's stop there. This is a couple quotes from John Piper in his sermon, The Cosmic Church. Most of us live our lives with far too little awareness of the stupendous realities around us. Most of us go through day after day and seldom feel the impact of the magnitude of what we are caught up in by belonging to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the ruler of the universe. And we don't take enough time to meditate on how our jobs, our home, life, our leisure, our church involvement, how each of these fits into the cosmic significance of the church. And consequently, our lives often lack the flavor of eternity and the aroma of something ultimate. Oh, that there might be more people among us whose manner of life mirrors something mysterious and wonderful and whose words have a cosmic significance. We, brothers and sisters, have cosmic significance. And then the next screen, Tori. Same sermon. The Church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. Do you see ourselves that way? You do if you have a kingdom perspective. If the interpretive model of your theology is the kingdom, you do see the church as the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group or organization or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun, and so on and so forth. 
Let me quickly go through uh, these. Go ahead and go to the next one. These takeaways. The meaning and purpose of creation, of you and I, is not only found in Jesus, but is sustained and ruled by him. Be discerning, be submissive, and serve. We need to get over ourselves and expand our existence beyond our wants. The kingdom interpretive model allows us to dream bigger, allows us to see more of what God is doing. It's not just Mike. It's not just my life. The struggles that I face are real. But there's so much more beyond the reality that I sometimes put my blinders up to. Much grander things are going on in our midst. True love, joy, peace, and fruit are found when we are serving the kingdom, when we are the reconciliation agents. Point two, if Christ is the Lord of the universe, is he not Lord of me, of my life, of my heart and mind? Does he not sustain everything in my life? Do I live moment to moment understanding my existence this way? Or is Christ a Sunday event? And that's a question each one of us has to ask. Point three, why am I attending heritage? Is it to be spiritually fed, to be entertained, to scratch a religious itch? Or is it to serve the creator and the sustaining king? Lastly, we need to expand our understanding of the gospel to the breadth described by the kingdom of God. Then walk in it by faith as a community, growing as disciples, kingdom disciples, and discipling each other in truth and love. You want to go to the last slide, Tony? That's it. So now if you would stand, we will close in the Lord's Prayer, slightly modified. And slightly different format. Our Father in heaven, Awesome is your name. Your kingdom work and your will be done in me, my house, and at heritage. Give us our needs for today and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from the dominion of darkness. Let us live fully under the reign of Jesus our King in the kingdom of light, being transformed into his image discerning and submissive to his will and exercising the realities of his kingdom in the rogue valley and the world through service. Amen.